Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Well, this is that week in the Beeson Podcast series when we listen to a lecture, and our lecturer today is our own Professor Alan P. Ross, Professor of Divinity, Old Testament and Hebrew, here at Beeson Divinity School. He's a wonderful scholar. Uh, His writings are used in many different universities, colleges, seminaries across the world, really. He has a Ph.D. from the University of Cambridge, has written many, many books, not only introducing biblical Hebrew, but also holiness to the Lord. It's a book on Leviticus. He has just now completed three volumes on the Psalter, on the Psalms. And that's what he's going to be talking about today. We asked Dr. Ross to give this lecture to introduce a chapel series back in 2006 on the theme, Living with the Psalms. And he does one of the best jobs I have ever heard of introducing the entire Psalter, how to study it, how to use it, how important it is in our own personal spiritual life and in the life of the church, in worship, in liturgy. This is just a fantastic overview of the Psalter. Dr. Alan P. Ross, Living with the Psalms. Thank you. Uh, Dr. George really knows how to introduce people. I noticed he didn't say he teaches Hebrew, one of the best received courses in the seminary. But, uh, <laughs> but our focus is on the Psalms today, and so I want to direct our attention to that and that discipline. This is... Uh, I think a tremendous way for us to focus our worship, our spiritual direction this semester. What I want to do in our time here today is make a few general comments about the Book of Psalms. Then I want to take you briefly into a brief psalm for a few moments. And then I want to make a series of suggestions on what we can do with the psalms, both in our own spiritual lives and also in corporate worship or small groups, large groups, whatever. Uh, I was preparing on this throughout the week and kept adding so much to it. After a while, I realized that there's no way because most people who have studied the Psalms in any detail know that you can never possibly exhaust this book. Everybody who's tried to write a commentary on it, everybody who's even spoken on a Psalm, realizes that you're just skimming the surface. There's just too much here. But it is, and uh, has been for thousands of years, the hymn book and the prayer book of the Company of the Redeemed. And uh, therefore, it is very important in the life of the believing community and in worship. The book of Psalms themselves, though, are very different as a collection. There isn't any other book in the Bible that takes hold of the heart of the believer like the book of Psalms. This is not a book that you can just read for facts and details and history or, or precepts, but this speaks to the heart, and, and it is the heart of the believer speaking. And to give it any kind of a serious attention means that you are drawn into it as if the prayers and the praises that are here are yours. And that's, of course, what was divinely intended. Interestingly enough, this book is not a book about the acts of 
the saints or the believers down through the centuries, it's a book about the words of the saints. And that's a big difference. You can look at historical events. You can even look at descriptions of worship. But unless you hear what the people are saying, you don't know what's going on, really. You can, uh, if you were in the days of Abraham and you looked over here and there's Abraham making a sacrifice, and over here there's a Canaanite making a sacrifice, it looks very much the same. Pile of stones, an animal, fire. But when you hear what they say, then you begin to understand how the faith is operating. And this book is a collection of what the believers down through the ages have said in their meditations, their prayers, their praises, uh, their worship, liturgies, all of it put together for the rest of the household of faith to see, to learn, to use in their own spiritual lives. But it's not merely a collection of what believers have said through the ages in their prayer lives. Because being the f that these are in the scriptures, we know from our understanding of the doctrines of the Bible that they're divinely inspired. So it's not merely what David said or what Asaph said. It's what the Holy Spirit said through David or through Asaph. And so these are the kinds of prayers that God once prayed. These are the kinds of praises that God likes to have because he has the, prompted the people down through the ages uh, to put them in these forms and to use them in their devout service to him. They are unlike any other part of the scripture directly because, say, if you're in narrative or if you're in the law or whatever, it's very hard to make those verses and those lines yours and meet the needs of your heart. But that's what the Psalms are meant to be. You can look at this collection, and it's filled with uh, allusions to, to suffering or to persecution or to physical pain or to, to friends who have, who have turned against you and proved unfaithful or people who have tried to destroy you or, or destroy your reputation. It's the whole human dilemma of living in a world where there's strife and conflict. And you read how they prayed and how they trusted the Lord and, and how they put it into the, their, their language of, uh, of their faith. But you realize when you're doing that that those words are your words. And when you face opposition or trouble or persecution or fears or <laughs> lawsuits or uh, enemies or <laughs> deacons or whatever else, uh, <laughs> when you're dealing with these things, uh, it's just any of the problems, whether they, are, whether they are great or whether they are small, people for centuries have gone to the Psalms and turned them into their prayers and their praises and come away with great comfort. Um, one commentator from the Middle Ages put it very well. He said, The church has found nothing finer to place on the lips of the worshiper than the Book of Psalms. Unfortunately, the modern church is trying to find something finer than the words of the Book of Psalms, and you can't do it. Because the book of Psalms 
while they cover all of the human experiences and relationships, are put into the form of deep and profound theological truths. These are not little simple things to live by. These are profound theologies. We know this is confirmed by the fact that a lot of more liberal scholars want to date them later because they don't think people as early as David could have known that much. They are not passages that you can simply read through and say, well, I've got that one down. Uh, you do a study of a psalm and you realize that you haven't even scratched the surface because you're dealing with doctrine, you're dealing with the human experience, you're dealing with images that are meant to draw out of you all kinds of experiences and connotations that, that you can't just say, oh yeah, the Lord's a rock, okay, and go on. There's more to it. And it takes you a while to think uh, through all of this. Part of the difficulty is that we don't take time with Scripture. Part of the difficulty, we have dissociated ourselves from that culture. And times we read the Scriptures, we don't stop to ask what some of the figures are. Or we might use modern versions that try to decode the symbols and the figures, which in effect ruin the verse. Uh, if you take away the poetic language, you might conclude that what you've said is clearer than what God said, but you have stripped the verse of most of its meaning. And that's the, that's the problem with a lot of the, the modern attempts to make it understandable. Uh, if you have, for example, a verse that says, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, and in my church, the prayer book translates it, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. The strength and rock are not the same. There's a connection, but that doesn't exhaust the metaphor of the rock. And so we have to slow down a little bit and think. But then that comes up within the realm of meditation. And I'll talk about that in a moment. What I'd like for you to do for a few moments is take a look at a very important psalm to use as an introduction to the whole collection. It's Psalm 117. It's one I can handle in a few minutes. So uh, we'll look at that briefly, and then I want to make some comments about what we might try to do with the book of Psalms. But I should tell you that everything I'm going to say about what we should do with the book of Psalms is going to take time, and it's going to take thinking, it's going to take studying, uh, all those things that uh, we pay for but don't want. Uh, this is <laughs> one of the problems with higher education. Psalm 117, the shortest psalm, of course, in the whole collection, is one of what we call the Hallel Psalms. You don't need to have taken Hebrew to know that Hallel means praise. But this is a collection of psalms that were sung at the great festivals and Psalm 117 would be a little doxology type of a psalm, but it's filled with meaning, as you probably would expect, uh, from a passage in the book. It's a typical praise psalm in that it follows a pretty good structure for a descriptive praise where there will be a, a, an invitation for people to praise, and then it will give the reason why you should praise, and then it will conclude with either another invitation to praise or a lesson. Here it's an invitation. The first line is the call for praise, 
Hallelujah. Even if you had, haven't had Hebrew, you know what that means. Uh, praise the Lord. That, in case you're not aware of it, is an imperative. We sometimes make hallelujah or hallelujah an, an exclamation. And indeed, that is one of its later uses. But hallelujah and hallelujah and here, hallelujah, praise the Lord, is an imperative. And the worshiper who is writing the psalm is therefore inviting people to join him in praise. The word itself has all the connotations of a, of a glowing report because praise, as Lewis reminds us in his book on the reflections of the Psalms, is the natural and spontaneous reaction to something that you enjoy. And uh, he goes as far to say as if you're not enjoying the Lord, you won't be praising. So the lack of praise is a sign of a problem with the spiritual life. This is why we would say, on the basis of the study of the book of Psalms, that the measure of the spiritual life of any congregation is how much praising is taking place. Because it tells you whether or not people are enjoying the Lord or praying. But keep in mind, I said praising, not singing. Uh, we have substituted singing for praising. We'll talk about that in a moment. So this is, praise the Lord, all you nations. But then he follows it up with another word for praise. We translate it laud or extol. But the interesting thing about this psalm, for you language people out there, that he shifts to an Aramaic word. And this is very helpful for this psalm because the focus of the psalm is not just calling Israel to praise. It's a call for all nations it's a call for all peoples. And it's not just an invitation for all the nations and all the people with no exceptions in the world to praise God. It's a call to praise which is anticipating what is prophesied, that all the nations and all the peoples of the world will praise the Lord, which is why Paul ends up in Romans with dealing with this issue of the plan of God even in the Old Testament, for the nations to be coming to faith and praising the Lord. So it's, laud him, all you peoples. So everyone, everywhere, is called to do this. And that's the important thing I think we need to stress when we're reading the book of Psalms, studying it or working with it in our own uh, circles or privately. Uh, praise is not an option. It's not an it, it isn't what you say, well, for a special service, why don't we have some time of praise? This is not an option. It's a command. And there are more commands in the book of Proverbs than any other part of the Bible. This is what God expects people to pray to do, to praise him, to give him the honor that is due his name, to laud him, to extol him, to lift him up in in their words. This is this is the life of the believer. If you take a little closer look at the Psalm 122 we read, it tells you why they went to worship. The tribes go up to Jerusalem. Why? To give thanks to the name of the Lord. Not to hear a good sermon or to uh, listen to the choir, although that would be there. But you go to praise the Lord. And this is a very important part. Now, being that this is a praise psalm, it'll tell you why, what you should praise the Lord for. And I've chosen this psalm for our talk today because it gets at the heart of the theology of the book of Psalm, the fundamental reason that appears all the way through the book for praise. 
And it's stated here in two expressions. And I'm going to translate a little bit the way I want to. (laughs) Because his loyal love is great over us. And the truth of the Lord endures forever. We've got two key words in the reason for the praise. Those of you who have had some Hebrew will recognize the word is chesed. First-year students, not hesed. It's chesed. <laughs> Get the right letter in there. This is, the, this is this beautiful word that occurs throughout the Scriptures uh, we will see it in Bibles translated loving kindness. We'll see it translated faithful love. We'll see it a number of different translations. It's a covenant word in-house. This is the, the word that describes the way that God deals with his people. Uh, it basically is a word that if you tried to unpack all of the parts of it, it's saying that God has made a covenant with us. We would say through the blood, of course. He's made a covenant with us, so we're belonging to his family. But it also says that he keeps the covenant with us. He's, he's loyal to the covenant promises. But even more than that, he does so because he loves us. That's why we have a hard time translating this. It's that relationship and God's loyalty to it, and the loyalty is based on the love. But it's not just God's loyal love for us, because we have this word used throughout the Bible for the responsibility of a believer to other believers, to show this same kind of chesed to one another, because we're in the covenant. This word becomes the dominant theme in Israelite worship and in the faith of the believers, because... When God demonstrates his faithful covenant love, it usually means he has answered my prayer, he has delivered me, he has rescued me, he's kept me healthy, he's provided my family. Those are all benefits that are coming from the Lord because he loves me and and he is faithful to do the things he has promised to me. So every time you turn around in praise, it's sort of coming back to that, even if they don't always say it, but it's at the heart of most of the praises. On the other side, we've got a lot of psalms that some people call laments. I prefer to call them prayer songs because they're not just lament. But in these prayers, they are addressing the problem of suffering, of pain, of imminent death. Everything that looks like God isn't being faithful to his covenant. And so what do they do? They pray that the Lord will draw out his loyal love to them or demonstrate his loyal love, or they might come back in the more reasoned wisdom psalms and realize that this too is part of God's faithful love for his people, to test them and to draw them into a deeper relationship. So they never quite got over this concept because it is their whole life with God. And you can see it very easily in Psalms how much this became an important part of the worship of Israel. While you got the page over, we've got a nice little liturgical section in the very next Psalm. Psalm 118 begins, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loyal love endures forever. That's the theme. Then, Let Israel now say, so all of the Israelites in the sanctuary, they would say it, his loyal love endures forever. Then let the house of Aaron, all the clergy, let them say it. 
So they come in. His loyal love endures forever. Then let all those who fear the Lord, all the worshipers, let them say it together. His loyal love endures forever. So you get this whole orchestrated parts for the worship to exclaim this. But if you look over at the great Hallel Psalm, Psalm 136, you can see how this is just such an important part of their worship. In Psalm 136, and we won't go through the whole psalm, but this is obviously an antiphonal psalm. You would have one speaker, or probably a cantor, who would sing the main line, and then either the Levitical choir or the congregation would respond with, His loyal love endures forever. And even though I may be in a momentary time of suffering or a difficulty, I always come back to this fact of the faith that it's a lifetime in His covenant love, no matter what happens. So, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. And then the others would respond, His loyal love endures forever. And as you read through that psalm, it's just as He's tracing through all the things that God does, but every half verse... They come back with this constant theme so that it doesn't matter in the passage whether you're talking about how God created the world or how he delivered the people or how he redeemed. It's all explained by this one constant theme for his loyal love endures forever. God created the world. Why? Because he has this loyal love. God has redeemed us. Why? Because he has this loyal love. God answered my prayer last week because this loyal love. God will take me to glory because loyal love. He is faithful, even if we prove to be unfaithful, because he's made a covenant with us, and he loves us. That's this word. But it's usually connected with other expressions that enhance it. And one of the most common words that goes with it is the word truth. You'll often find the loyal love and truth matched as a pair. And that's what you have here. On the one half, his loyal love we translate it as great, but the verb means it is superabounds. It's uh, even greater. And, his, and the truth of the Lord. Truth is one of the characteristics of God. It's a description of Him. It's a description of His Word. And the uh, Hebrew term itself essentially means that, that it's completely reliable and completely dependable. You count on it. There's, there's, no, there's no reason to distrust it, or there's no wavering. When God says something, it's true. And it will achieve what it is designed to do. Now, if you'd made this, these two concepts work together, you could really treat the two halves of this verse as a, as a hendiades. In grammar, that is where you have two nouns that are joined with a conjunction and one becomes a modifier. If you're not familiar with that, it's very common in the Bible, but if you're not familiar with it, it would be the same as if I said to you, I am good and mad. Well, you know, I'm not saying I'm good and, on the other hand, I'm mad. Uh, it's, I'm very mad. So if you say his loyal love and truth, you could be meaning his completely reliable or dependable covenant faithful love. It's like stacking up superlatives to try to get at this quality of the Lord. And so since that's going to be the reason you praise, everything else that occurs fits into this whole grid. Now in your praises, you'll go down and say, because he did this and because of this, whatever, but it still comes back to the bottom line. 
who he is, what is he like, and why is he acting the way he does, this is God. And all you can do for a conclusion on a psalm like this is to say, the psalmist, hallelujah, praise Yah. Now, with these ideas in mind, I want to make some suggestions. I, I ran out of pages, so I'll just give you some of the highlights of what I think you can do. <laughs> I was trying to make a list of suggestions, and you know, there are books out like The Use of the Psalms in the Last 3,000 Years. Uh, <laughs> kind of hard to narrow it down to 20, 25 minutes here. But I want to address this, not just for, say, uh, Beeson and the school year or the mentoring groups or whatever. I want to focus it much wider, but it certainly would apply there. And maybe this will be of some help. Uh, I think the first thing I want to deal with is the practical ways to use the Psalms in your spiritual life. And so that really is your whole life. Um, I don't know how. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I really have trouble finding out how someone can develop a rich spiritual life and never do anything with the Psalms. Uh, because this is the heart of the believer, and it's the heart of God. And uh, therefore, we spend a great deal of time here. So I want to deal with the spiritual life. Then I want to deal with ways that we can use the Psalms to learn how to do certain things. And I'll come back to that in a moment. And then I want to deal in the third part with some suggestions of using the Psalms in worship. And that could be corporate, private, whatever else. But first, in the spiritual life. I'll go fast. We're not going to be here through lunch. Don't worry. First, in the spiritual life. <laughs> the first suggestion is going to sound shallow, but it isn't in any way. Read them. <laughs> That's obvious. But I'm using read in the British sense. Uh, if you go to a university in England, uh, they don't ask you what you're majoring in. They ask you, what are you reading? That means study. You don't just simply open up a psalm, read it through. That's fine. You can do it. One time we had a discussion at one of the seminaries. I was in faculty and students. It was sort of an informal thing. And the question came up uh, with regard to how you people on the faculty have your devotions. <laughs> Very direct question. And one of the people said, well, isn't there a time that you just put all your books away and just sit down and open up the Bible and read it? And I was interested to note that not one of us said, yes, it's impossible. The more you study, the more you learn, the more inquisitive you are about the text. And if you pick up a psalm and you read it and you say, well, that's an interesting thought, and with all the skills and the tools and the knowledge you have, occasionally you're not reaching for a, a, a commentary or dictionary to say, how can I understand that word better or that line better, then I don't know what we're doing here in seminary. Um, you really shouldn't, as a, as, a, as a seminary student or a minister or a person in the work of the Lord, be able to separate your intellectual study of Scripture with a devotional study. That's a horrible bifurcation. Because that says, well, I'm, I'm not going to study it for devotion. I'm going to study it to get up a sermon. <laughs> what kind of a sermon is that going to be? Uh, that's not what we want. You read it carefully, meaning you, you make sure you understand what the psalm is saying, which means you read it slowly, which means you read it prayerfully which means you think about it. 
It's going to be filled with all kinds of images that come out of that culture. Uh, for example, on Tuesday we read Psalm 29. If you took the time to sit down and think about the psalm and read it and ask what's going on, it's a description of a thunderstorm. It's a storm that comes up out of the Mediterranean Sea, crosses over into Lebanon, breaks up the trees of Lebanon, roots up the plants in the wilderness of Kadesh, causes earthquakes on the mountains of Lebanon, and dies out in the wilderness. And David says, that's the voice of the Lord. Well, what's important if you're thinking about the psalm is to understand that it's not written in a vacuum, it's written in a culture. Lebanon, Syria, that's Canaanite country. Baal is the storm god. But David says, no, it's Yahweh. He could have given a weather report for Jerusalem, but he picks the land of the Canaanites to say it's not Baal, it's Yahweh. The Psalms, when you read them, have rich theological ideas, but they're not written in a vacuum. They have an impact on that culture, which is going to help you to see that they should have an impact on our culture. That there's an idea here that is going to be timeless because the threats to the faith and the, the rivals to the Lord are always there. We also have to work with the images of the Bible quite a bit because they're not our images necessarily. Uh, I don't know what your background is, but I know we have lots of students who have never seen anybody winnow. Um, don't know what winnowing is, uh, but it's there in the Bible. Uh, sometimes people try to decode and come up with different images, but they're not the same issues. So you have to get a little bit into the culture to find out, which means to think first of what shepherds do and what winnowers do and what... What, a, what the different um, instruments of music are, and it, it fills out your understanding. So all, my first point is that if you're reading the psalm, try to read it for understanding so that you know what he's saying and why he's saying and what's going on. Secondly, memorize them. should be able to memorize. You made it this far in education, memorizing. We don't do this anymore, but it's a constant theme of the Scriptures and certainly of the psalmist, to hide the Word of God in his heart. And that way, as David says in Psalm 16, in the night the Spirit of God can teach you because you have put something in your heart and your mind for him to work with rather than Jay Leno or somebody else. But the idea is that you, you want to memorize Scripture because you want to make that your thinking. And that's the important part of the book of Psalms. Did you know that up till about 150 years ago in the organized church, and I'll let you define that, but in the organized church up to about 150 years ago, you couldn't be ordained to any office of the church unless you had committed to memory the book of Psalms and prayed them through every two weeks. The reason was because that's your spiritual life. That's where you are in communion with God, with the prayers and the praises. Third, meditate on them. Now, when I grew up in the church, nobody told us what meditation was. It just meant don't talk. You know, sit there quietly and think for a while. But it's a real important discipline in the spiritual life. There are four steps to meditation. 
If you're going to meditate on the word, the first thing you do is study it, because you have to know it, what you're thinking about. And secondly, memorize it, so that it's not just understood, but it's in your thinking. Third, turn it into a prayer. You talk to God about it. And the words of the psalm, the praises, the prayers, direct them to God, communicate with God in the language of the psalm. And fourth, talk to yourself about them. You preach yourself a little sermon. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God. What's the matter with you? <laughs> this is the kind of thing, Psalm 42, Psalm 43. So that you're actually, the, the psalm becomes such a part of your life and such a part of your prayer life that you are exhorting yourself in the faith and communicating the words to your heart so that it'll bring about change. And if you don't do that, it's kind of hard to know how you would teach it or preach it to somebody else because it has to touch you first or it isn't going to touch anybody. Fourth, you can build your vocabulary. Sometime in your spiritual life, you've got to get past the point of saying, God is really neat. I mean, the book of Psalms is filled with glorious vocabulary to describe God. But why do we keep lapsing into high school when we want to describe God? Been, I mean, you've been to seminary, you're going to have a label that says you're a master of divinity or something. But this book, if you make it a part of your life, is going to give you the language that is a, a, appropriate for God. And it's, and it's rich when you try to, de, to describe the Lord in, in terms that are, that are theologically profound and that are going to be instructive for other people. So the more you know the Psalms and becomes a part of your life, it becomes a part of your vocabulary, uh, then it's going to change you so that you'll be much more articulate as a believer. And this is one of our major problems, by the way, I don't know if you know, in the church in America. We've raised a crop of inarticulate Christians. Uh, they really cannot say what they believe or talk about God in any way that gets beyond the ground level. But the Psalms will help you to do that. Now, let me move quickly into the second point, instruction. There are three things that I think you can learn to do by studying the Psalms. One is to learn how to pray. Now, you probably already know, but let me just walk you through some of the principles here. If you start studying the prayer Psalms, and this is a good thing to do as a group, Certainly, it's a thing you should do in the life of the church. There are certain principles here that I think need to be incorporated in the prayer life that the psalmists always have. One of the things in their prayer life is that they're not interested so much in giving God every detail of the problem. They're much more interested in praising God. All of the prayer songs, or laments as you call them, include praise rather than try to go on and on and on about your surgery or your finances or whatever else. God knows all that. You lay it out before God, but your prayer is filled with praise. Martin Luther said that whoever prays with faith, like the psalmist has, will be able to praise God before the answer is given. And this is why when you study the prayer psalms, one of the things that you'll notice about them is that they all include what we call in studying the psalms a vow of praise, sort of a rehearsal. 
you're praying earnestly for God to do something. And you'll see this when you study the Psalms closely. All of a sudden, you think it's a prayer request, he's praying, but all of a sudden you've got a section of praise. What that is normally is what he wants to say in the sanctuary when God answers the prayer. And it's also a way of motivating God to, Lord, if you want me to say this in the sanctuary, then you'll have to answer the prayer. So if I want to go into the sanctuary and say, God is faithful and answer prayer, Lord, I'm willing to do that. It's not bargaining with God. It's simply doing two things. It's vowing to praise, which is part of the whole cycle. But it's also a way of checking yourself to make sure what you are praying is in harmony with the will of God. You've got to come up with a reason why you're praying this. If I am a self-indulgent, affluent, indifferent, worldly Christian and I want God to heal me, why? There's no, nothing in that for God and certainly nothing beneficial for me. But what you're doing is saying, Lord, this is what I want to say. Now when the answer comes, then you've got to pay your vow. You go to the sanctuary and praise. So that's what it's called. All these psalms of prayer also have sections of confidence, except one. <laughs> and the one that doesn't have any section of confidence is David's confession of sin, Psalm 51. He's not very confident. He's asking for forgiveness. But you have a prayer. And then immediately, but Lord, you are my shield and my defender and the lifter up of my head, even though I've got all these enemies over here. And you balance in your faith while you're praying. It's always this, this, this con contrast. The enemies are rising up against me, but you are my shield. If you dwell only on the problem, you dwell on the problem. But the psalmists are always bringing in confidence, which is their prayer. So if you learn to pray... Honestly, I mean, the psalmists do that. Lord, wake up. Why don't you do something? <laughs> it's what you feel. We say, oh, don't say that. It's blasphemous. Well, he knows you're thinking it anyway. But you know what you do is you pray directly to God. You pray with confidence. And you offer praise as part of your prayer because you're expecting God to do something. And then you can go praise. Now, you can also learn how to praise the Lord in very effective ways. We've dropped this from churches. I mean, we got tired of listening some, to somebody stand up and talk about their surgery. That's not praise. But what that meant is that the leaders of the church never taught anybody how to praise. Uh, most of the psalms of praise in the collection you can do in about one minute. So they don't have to go on and on and on. But in a song of praise, if you study them, uh, they are always focusing on what God is like. Not just what happened to me. That's in there. But it always comes up, this is what the Lord is like, these are his attributes, and they include instruction for the people. That's why praise is edifying. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's an invitation uh, that is given. So you learn in your praising to make sure that you are describing God, elevating God, focusing on God. And that comes out very clearly in the book of Psalms because... There is a difference between saying thank you, like we do in our language, and biblical praise. You may not think of it very much, but in our language, thank you, you're always the subject of the sentence, <laughs> even if you don't say it. It's I thank you or thanks or whatever. But biblical praise tries to get more to making the thing that you delight in 
the subject of the sentence. He lifted me up from the miry clay. He put a new song in my mouth. It's, it's all about Him. And if you can get in your praise cycle that reversing the focus, you know, so you don't say in church, uh, I led five people to the Lord on the way to California. Praise the Lord. Um, we're happy about that. But the, the point is, how have you elevated God in the eyes of the people? How have you encouraged them? You've probably pushed them down under the seat because they could never do that, they think. So what you're trying to do is to edify and build up their faith. That's why we say praise is indispensable to the spiritual life of the congregation. The people in the church need to have the opportunity to express their faith, what God does for them, what they believe, and encourage each other. And if we don't allow that... Um, we're quenching the Spirit. Um, let me say just a couple of words quickly about worship. The, uh, one of the things, I was going to say this about the learning to pray and praise. One of the things I would just suggest to you that would be really great fun to do, and I've done it occasionally, is to take groups of people on weekend retreats where you study the prayers and the praises of the Psalms and then teach the people how to write them. It's not painting by the numbers, but if you say, well, first here you, you call for people to praise, and then you give a reason for the praise, and then you describe what has happened, and then put in some attributes of God, and, whatever, and pretty soon you'll have people just writing their own devotions, their own meditations, exactly like the book of Psalms. They don't think they can do it, but they can. It just takes a little bit of a push in the right direction. Worship. Um, public reading of the Psalms. And I'm not going to spend much on that, but that really should be a part of any kind of worship. But there's a great variety of ways you can do it. Antiphonally, by parts, in unison, uh, somewhat of a half chant or a half read, and so on. And we're going to be trying different things like that over the course of the year, and you can try them. There are books available on different ways the Psalms can be read in public reading and so on. My only suggestion is that when you get people to take part in reading in a worship service, the book of Psalms, uh, make sure they can read. It's always helpful. Um, in one of the churches I belong to, you couldn't read any scripture in church unless you took their course on how to read scripture in church. So at least you can pronounce words correctly, you know when to breathe, you know, all these different little things. Uh, the Psalms especially, we tend to have them in worship services maybe just a few verses or part. We rattle through them. We don't take time with them. Uh, people don't stop to think what they're saying. Uh, they may or may not be connected to the message or the meaning of the service. I think we need to really rethink how we're reading the Scriptures publicly. Um, secondly, singing. The Psalms can be sung. You can buy hymn books that have put the whole book of Psalms with musical scores that you can use. Or you can use hymns that are based upon, like we did today with certain psalms. If you look at the back of the hymn book, where it's got all the scripture references, you can look through the section of the psalms, and you've got dozens of psalms that are listed there connected to certain hymns in the hymn book. Uh, they may not be word for word that are there, but they may be the inspiration for the hymn. So if you're trying to match the psalm you're reading for the day with the hymn you're going to sing, they are there. One of the things that comes up is uh, choruses. 
I'm not against choruses. I'm against most choruses. But uh, the problem that I have with a lot of choruses is that in studying the Psalms, they tend to do what the Psalm starts to do, but then don't get into it. They tend to be decisions to praise or calls to praise without giving the reasons. Uh, or they tend to use part of the psalm, but if you don't know what the psalm was saying or what the chorus really was meant to say, is a little misleading. One of the best examples, it's in the hymn book, is uh, this is the day the Lord has made. Right out of Psalm 118, word for word. But who sings that chorus and thinks of the resurrection? But that's what it's about. If you had the full chorus and could read the second verse, it talks about the day is the resurrection, when the stone becomes the chief cornerstone, and this is the work that God is doing. Now, if you went back and read the original version of This is the Day, which is in the earlier Beeson hymn book that we had, uh, written by Isaac Watts, which is the same, this is the day the Lord has made, but he goes on to talk about all the doctrine, about it's the day of resurrection where the Lord has given us new life and so on. But I don't think you should be satisfied with it's just a nice sunny day, so let's sing this is the day the Lord has made, although that's true. But the song was meant to do something more. I think everything you sing has to be evaluated to make sure it's going to communicate and to make sure that it's going to harmonize with the service. And if it's connected to the psalm, it wouldn't hurt for you to try to explain to people what the connection is so that they know you're actually incorporating Scripture here in this music. Uh, liturgy. Every church has liturgy. Don't be afraid of the word. Paul loved it. Very common word in the New Testament for spiritual service. It's the work of the people for you uh, Greek people. Um, it can mean just about anything, but what you're trying to do in worship is get people to participate rather than just sort of sit there as passive auditors. Um, and we use the Psalms a lot this way. We use them for calls to worship and for different kinds of exclamations and blessings and take the offerings and benedictions. And you want to do it that way, but I think when you start looking at the Psalms and see that's how they use them, then you can get more participation by people with responses, with words and lines from the Psalms, like I showed you from Psalm 118. And then just final, the last word, is uh, preaching or teaching from the Psalms. This is a lost art. It's hardly ever done. Uh, but it is really some of the richest teaching or preaching you will ever do for several reasons. Number one, most of the Psalms are timeless spiritual truths. Uh, you don't have to go back into the context and find out what happened in the chapter before. You've got a Psalm, ten verses. And it's in language that is about the spiritual life in commonly shared problems and issues of life. You've got a ready built-in connection. And what helps you the most is a lot of the people in the church know the Psalms and love them. You couldn't do anything better than to take them into a psalm that has gotten them through three funerals and two weddings and all of their life and, and really focus on the beauty of that psalm. But it means you have to understand that each of these psalms is a unit. It's got a central theme. It's theology. It's doctrine. Couched in the beauty of poetry, 
God is, Wordsworth said, God is the poet, capital P. He loves beauty. Why did God risk clarity, you might say, for beauty? Well, he didn't do that. It's our ignorance that thinks he did that. Because if you understand poetry, you know it's saying more than a simple propositional statement could make. He's calling out of you different connotations to the words, different feelings, emotional, physical responses, as well as spiritual. And yet all of it developing a theme that is a solid piece of doctrine about God and what he does with built-in applications of what he wants, or the psalmist or God wants people to do, how they should respond. And then on top of that, you've got this whole array of psalms that are Christocentric, messianic, frequently quoted in the New Testament. Uh, I would say to you, if you've never tapped into this as a, as a way of, of teaching or preaching the doctrine of the Bible and the scriptures, uh, get into the book of Psalms on that level. I wouldn't tackle Psalm 118 the first day, but you know, get into those that are short and clearer to you and quoted in the New Testament and see what the theology is. But see how they've turned it into a cardinal, uh, a cardinal principle that they will live by because they're praising God for it, but they're praying for it, they're meditating on it. It's indispensable to their spiritual life. It's not just a little doctrine that they learn, tuck away, and then go off and do their own thing. It's their life. But their life is based upon doctrine. And that's what we have to recapture in the life of the church today. That people have to know the doctrine, but they can do it in different ways. I mean, you want to study Romans. You've got to study Romans. It's the charter of the church. But you can also study doctrine in Psalms because it's the heart of the church. It's the prayer life. But you can't separate prayer and praise from doctrine. If you do, you lose it all. love the statement of uh, Tozier, and I'll just close with Mr. Tozier. He says, the last thing God wants is a group of shallow Christians getting together to brag about God. That's not it. It is spiritually sound people who love to grow in the knowledge of God and who are in the Scriptures and are living it out in their prayer and praise life. And they come together to pray and praise together because that's the life of the church. That's the spiritual life. Because that shows you that God is alive and functioning in their lives. And without that, it's just another assembly, but it's not a holy convocation. So there's all kinds of things that you can do, especially this year as we focus on Psalms. There's all kinds of literature that you can read that will help you. Uh, but mostly just get into it and see what's there because it is life-transforming. Well, this will get us at least some ideas to work with, but there's much more that you could do. But let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you have revealed your will to us in the beauty of poetry, in songs and hymns and praises and meditations that, that are timeless for the life of the faith. The human dilemma doesn't change. But God doesn't change. We know that of you, O Lord, and that your care for us is as rich as it ever was for anyone else. But we rejoice in the fact that we are in the new covenant and that we know more than the psalmist did. And yet so often we don't even measure up to the prayer life and the praise life that they had. Help us to begin there 
and carry it through the word and on into glory when we join the choirs in heaven who will sing forever of the holiness and love of the Lord. Pray this in our Savior's name. Amen. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.